studying uh, major awakenings, major revivals, major like sort of outpouring of God in history. Has anybody ever spent, have you ever spent time reading into any of that? Anybody ever spent time? Some of you have read some of like revival history. One of the things that is constantly happening when God pours out a, just, a, just more of his presence, whenever you see uh, awakening happen, it largely comes through the way that we relate to our neighbor. That it, it constantly, uh, in, in these experiences, what we find is that it's, it's people caring for their, the last, the least, and the lost, the people who are furthest from Jesus, and, and maybe uh, outside of the faith, and that, that our relationship becomes more real in that way. And, and that's certainly true of the vineyard. I don't know, I, I was talking to Becca a little bit ago, um, and she said, well, when did the vineyard start? And I was like, well, I mean, you know, it's sort of like a nebulous, like, uh, you know, so did it start in the late 70s, early 80s? I don't really know. It's sort of, but uh, in the beginning days of the vineyard, one of the primary things uh, that the guy that God used to start the vineyard was uh, John Wimber. One of the primary things that John Wimber said is, we got to care about the poor. Like, we got to care about the poor. Like, God really cares about those who are less fortunate. We got to care about the poor. It's certainly true about the vineyard that, that in the early days, that was one of the focuses. Uh, focuses. And if you look at a lot of other revival history, we don't really have time to look at that today, but that has been true, that we ought to be people who love our neighbor, right? That that ought to be something that marks the follower of Jesus. Now, we're going to read a story today, and if you have your Bible, you can grab, uh, you can turn to Luke 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's stacks of Bibles on each one of the columns, and, and you can grab one of those, or you can pull out your phone um, and, and turn to Luke 10. And what we're going to do is we're going to look through a story today that will be familiar to many of you. Um, but I want to take a, a really good look. So I'm going to read a few verses, and then we're going to talk a little bit, okay? Luke 10, and we're going to begin in verse 25. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and you will live. What does he mean by love your neighbor as yourself? A couple weeks ago when we talked about loving one another, I talked about the fact that the word love that gets used in, in Scripture is one of six Greek words, and the word is agape, and it's the, the, the love that God shows towards humanity, and conversely, it can be the, the, the love that humanity shows towards God, and so it's this, this very sort of specific kind of love, one that's limitless, it's self-sacrificing, it's focused on the good of the one being loved with no reference to self. It's a selfless love. And in that message, I told you that the call on the followers of Jesus is to love one another, that something about the way that we interact with each other, we who follow Jesus, ought to be compelling to everyone else because they ought to see a kind of love that they don't see anywhere else, right? That there, there's something about the way that we love each other that, that demonstrates in a tangible way the way God loves that that's the kind of love that we're supposed to have. Well, when we look at this passage, the very same word, agape, is used. It says, uh, it says so 
love the Lord your God, agape, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And agape, love your neighbor as yourself. And actually, in the, the, the Greek, the second word love is not even there. It's agape, love the Lord with all your soul, with all your, I'm sorry, heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. It leaves it out. It just assumes that you understand that you are to love your neighbor the way that God loves you and that you love God. It's an interesting way to, to look at it. So this guy, this Jewish lawyer, law, Jerry's not here to make fun of me, lawyer, attorney, people who understand law, uh, approaches Jesus to try to trap him, and he asks him, okay, well, how do I inherit eternal life? And literally translated, he's saying, how do I get the good stuff? Like, how do I get the life from eternity? How do I, like, really live? And Jesus, you know, like, as a, as a good teacher, doesn't answer his question. <laughs> he just asks the question back to him, right? So he does. He says, so you're an expert in this stuff. How do you read it? I mean, if you read it, like, tell me what your interpretation is. And the, he says, well, agape, love God with everything you have. And agape, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus commends him for his interpretation, and he says, do this and you'll find life. Now, most of us are tempted, myself included, to just blow right past this, right? You guys know where this story is going. It's the story of the Good Samaritan, right? So yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, get to the Samaritan part, right? But if we skip this part, we will have missed a crucial part that we need to live a Christian life, to le live a completely... Integrity-driven life. What Jesus just said here is not just for that guy only. What Jesus just said is, if I want to find the life of the age to come, if I want to live a kingdom kind of life now, Jesus says I should love the Lord my God with all of my being and love my neighbor as myself. Did you catch? Like, that's huge. If you catch the, like, the, the bigness of that, that's huge. Like, here's these two things, and, and here's what it should do. At least it does it for me, and I hope it does it for you, is it should prompt you to ask two really scary questions, right? Anybody have two questions that you just, really scary questions? The first question is this, do I really love God that way? Like, really? Do I really love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all of my mind? Do I really? I mean, ask yourself that right now. Do I really love God with all my heart? All my heart. Not just some, not just like one-seventh, like Sunday is my heart with Jesus day. Do I really love God with all of my heart? Do I really love God with all of my soul? with all of my strength, with all of my mind. I mean, take an honest assessment. Think about it for yourself right now. Is that true of you? And if you're like me, as you start thinking about this, you don't like what you come up with, right? I mean, maybe I'm by myself up here, but you don't like what you come up with. You find yourself at times compromised, right? At some level, you go, well, you know, my mind... Man, whenever I, like, don't fill it with stuff, I don't really like where it goes. Right? Is that, is that your experience? You know, if you, if you don't, if you, okay, most Americans don't allow themselves any space to be silent and to not, like, fill your mind with things. But when you have space in your mind, where does it go? 
is your mind captivated by God? What about your heart? Like when you don't have, when you give your heart space, where does it go? Does it long for God? Or what about your strength? You know, you love your Lord your God with all your strength. And this is a bodily thing, right? Like this whole faith thing is not just up here and in here, right? Like it comes to your extremities, right? You have hands, most of us. Like what happens with, how do you engage loving the Lord your God with your body? I mean, many of us never even think about that. What does that look like? How do you engage your body in worship to God? I mean, every week we create space to do this music thing, right? Every week we try to create space for you to worship God, and many of us don't even sing. Maybe not many. Some of us don't even sing, let alone engage with our body. Do we love the Lord our God with all our body? I mean, and it's not, not just, it's not me telling you to do this. The guy that wrote this book, he put it in here. It's in the book. And it turns out he doesn't care whether you like vineyard music or Bethel music. Hymns are contemporary. Apparently, he doesn't care. He doesn't care if you like music at all. He doesn't care if you can carry a tune or not. Apparently, make a joyful noise. Find a song as a noise unto the Lord. That's in the book. Apparently, he doesn't care if you're outgoing or shy. I heard a podcast where the, the, the guy was like saying, well, I'm an introvert, so this whole, you know, hands in the air thing, that's all just, that's fooey. And I'm like, it's all over the book. You got to chuck the book before you can get there. Apparently, God doesn't like follow Carl Jung's uh, introvert-extrovert spectrum. Apparently, he doesn't care. I know, some of you are going to hate me for that. But I got I to gotta do what he says. Now, granted, you don't have to do it the way everybody else does it. But apparently, you're called to worship God with all your strength. That's a bodily thing. Do we do that? I mean, like, at some level, this should cause, a, like, if, if you're like me, it causes a little bit of panic. Like, do I really love God with all that I am? Like, if I take stock, do I act, do I say, like, man, with everything that is in me, I love the Lord my God. Is that true of you? And if not, are we engaged in practices that point us that way? I mean, maybe for some of you, like, the very first step, the very next step that you need to take is, like, to engage your body in worship, look, nobody's going to look at you. Nobody's impressed with how high you can put your hands. Nobody thinks you're that weird because I'm standing in front doing the same thing, right? I know it's like there's a little bit of like I, I understand the anxiety around like I'm going to do this thing. But let me tell you, when I first met Jesus, when I surrendered my life to Jesus, I had grown up around church. I knew that you should sing. I got that. But something different happens when you assume a posture toward the Lord, like an actual bodily posture. I went from like singing like my hands in my pockets like this to like, then I was like, all right, everybody else is sort of like doing, I don't know what this is. I'm just going to open my hands. Nobody's going to look at you weird if you do that, I promise. And if they do, it's more on them than it is you. 
something happens when you do this. When I got to the point where I had my hands in the air, my experience of communion with the Lord was way different than when I was just singing with my hands in my pocket. Throughout the Old Testament, when you read, like, when you look at the Hebrew words that accompany when they describe worship, there's body postures associated with it. There's no such thing as like a, you can't just, there's, you know, you read through the whole you know, Old Testament, there's not like a keep your hands in your pockets and don't get too committed. It's just not a posture in a book. But like maybe for some of you, that's the first step. It's like, you know what? I'm going to go stand in the back where nobody can see me the next time we have a worship song, and I'm going to put one hand about head high, you know. Nobody will know, but God will know. And maybe that's a start for you. And then you figure out, how do I connect with God using my whole body? I've seen people dance. I love it that people will dance. That's not me. I'm never going to dance. I will engage with my body, however. Maybe for some of you, the, the f- first step is to say, well, I need to pray. Like, I actually, <laughs> I want to, like, love the Lord my God with my heart. And for me, I, like, praying would be a really good start. Maybe you need to set an alarm on your phone to pray at the same time every day. It just goes off at the same time. And we're not talking, like, you know, hero desert fathers kind of prayer where you're going to pray like five hours or something like that. I'm talking like just like raw obedience. The phone goes off at, I mean, you got the, everybody carries one of these things, right? We're all addicted. Make it, make it work for you. Maybe it goes off. It goes off at, right, what time does it go off? 9.38, right? 9.38 it goes off. And we're not talking about praying hero prayers here. We're just saying, it's 9.38, God, I have committed to pray at this time, and I'm going to pray. And maybe I'm going to pray for five seconds today. Maybe that's what I got. Maybe I'm going to pray for 10 seconds today. That's all I got. But as you make a habit of engaging your heart with the Lord, you'll be surprised at what happens. Or maybe you apply the same thing. How many of you guys reading the, the, the Bible along with me t- through this? Like A bunch of you guys are reading... You know, that thing, like, asked me the first time I, did it ask you? The first time you read, it asked you if you wanted to set a reminder. My reminder goes off at 4 p.m. every day. And it says, hey, don't forget to read today. Maybe that would be a good step for you. It's like, I want to engage my mind with Scripture. And I, I'm not feeling it every single day, but just out of obedience. That I want to love the Lord my God with all my mind. I'm going to engage my mind with Scripture every day. Maybe that's the first step for you. So the first question was, do you really love God with all your being? The second one is just as serious, and I am forced to ask myself, is do I really love my neighbor the way I love myself? Do I really love my neighbor that way? I mean, apparently it's important. Jesus says it. Do I really love my neighbor the way? Let me think about how I love myself. Ready for this? How many of you will go hungry if you don't have to? You feed yourself, right? If you, if you have the ability to, you feed yourself every day. How many of you, like, sleep out in the cold when you don't have to, right? You make sure that you stay warm, right? How, you, you probably, you're just like me, you shovel out, right? When a snow happens, you shovel out and dig myself out. How many of you shovel your parking spot and throw a chair in it? I mean, maybe you don't throw a chair in it, but 
But you shovel your own parking spot out, right? How about, what about, uh, what about like, how many of you make sure that if you need medical care, you're going to get it? I make sure that if I need medical care, I get it. Now, I'm a little bit stubborn. I try to avoid going to the doctor. But I have started to become more of a, I need to go to the doctor, so I go to the doctor kind of person. But I make sure if I need medical care, I'm going to get it. I make sure that I have clothes to wear. I make sure that, you know, the other ways that I love myself. I make sure that if I'm lonely, I find somebody to talk to. Or if I'm overwhelmed and tired of people, I make sure that I carve out space to get away from people, right? Or maybe if I want to be entertained, I go to a movie or I go to a play. I go to uh, live music. It's one of my favorite things. So all these things we do to love ourselves and then more, right? Do we do them for our neighbors? Do you get them food when they can't afford it? How many of you are there paying the, the heat bill whenever somebody can't afford it? Do you shovel your neighbor out and throw a chair in there for them? What about, uh, you know, making sure your neighbor has access to medical care when they can't afford it? I mean, we keep talking. It gets depressing, doesn't it? Let me make sure that your neighbor has clothes. Or you make sure that when your neighbor's lonely, you're sitting with them, even when you don't feel like it. Or how many of you, I, mean, I know some of you do this because I've heard the stories, but how many of you make sure that when your neighbor's overwhelmed, you say, I'm going to go I'm gonna go watch their kids so they can go on date night. I mean, it's going to cost you a little something, right? How many of you check on your neighbor that way at all? How many of you know your neighbor at all? How do you love yourself, and do we really love our neighbor that way? I mean, these are scary questions, right? Or am I the only one? They're scary questions. We don't like to ask them. And here's the problem I, I always run into. You ready for Here's the problem I always run into. I am the best liar to myself. Because I can tell myself that I'm doing all of this stuff good enough, right? I am the best justifier of my actions. And I'll bet some of you are just like me. Some of you are, lie to yourself really well, right? Like, you, the minute something comes out, like, you, you see something. You don't even a salesperson to sell you. You start convincing yourself why this is something you should have, right? Like me. I had a story about my dad, but I didn't ask him if I could tell it, so I won't. Um, but I'm really good at lying to myself. And so Jesus comes out and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what do I do? I go to full-on religious mode, don't I? I pull out my checklist and I go, all right, I read my Bible a couple times this week, prayed a couple times this week. Mm, hey, I put on worship music in my car. Sang really loud. That's two checks. Went to church. Boom. Small group. Boom. Doing pretty well. Love the Lord with my God with all my being. On the other side, pull out the other one, right? And I'm like, all right, I, I, bought, I bought coffee for the guy behind me in line. Didn't know him. Paid it forward. Check. I was at Sheets. Bought somebody some food. Boom. Uh, hey, when I was shoveling, I got down the sidewalk far enough that I got part of my neighbor's sidewalk. 
I mean, they could get out of their door now. Boom. I'm loving my neighbor as myself. Right? And I can check this whole thing, and I'll bet you're just like me, right? The minute Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, you start going, well, I'm sure I do. Let me just prove it. Right? Maybe I'm the only one. That's a horrible feeling. But we start trying to convince ourselves. And here's the deal. As soon as I hear Jesus say that, I go, well, of course I measure up. Let me pull out and prove why, why I measure up, you know. And if we're experts at lying to ourselves, as I consider these questions, what I find, whenever I approach the question of do I love my neighbor as myself, what I find is absolutely I do as long as I'm in control of who my neighbor is. Right? I absolutely love my neighbor as long as I get to decide who that person is. We're really, really good at lying to ourselves. Because here's the problem. If I don't get to decide who my neighbor is, this stuff gets really expensive and time-consuming. Doesn't it? Like, if, I, if, if I'm forced to, like, allow somebody else to define who my neighbor is, it gets really hard and expensive. Like, I mean, salt ain't cheap. You guys know, right? Now I got to salt, like, both of my next-door neighbors' sidewalks? Is that what this is about? Like, I got to pay for, like, Cobra for both of my unemployed neighbors? They can't afford it. Is that what this is about? I got to go shovel in six, I mean, neighbors, you guys. One, two, three across, one, two next. I got to shovel five parking spots? How do I love my neighbor? This is, I don't have time for that kind of thing. It's going to cost me more money. It's going to cost me more time. And so, if I can be in control of who my neighbor list is, then I can still be obedient to Jesus and not have to give away my life. And isn't that how we approach this most of the time? That I want to be, be able to say, yes, Jesus, I'm obedient to you, but this doesn't cost me too much. I get to decide how much this is going to cost me. Look at verse 29 says, but he wanted to justify himself, just like me. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? That's right. That's a really good question. And Jesus has a, uh, has, has a choice to make right here. If Jesus defines this in this moment as any specific person, he allows all of us to choose who, the, who our neighbors are, right? He says, well, you know, you're a good Jewish lawyer. So your neighbor is any good Jewish lawyer. You can decide what good means. If he's like, you know, you're a Christian, and so your neighbor is just other Christians, you can decide what that means. If he answers this in any specific way, he sets us free to religiously obey him without actually having a heart transformation, right? What does he say? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, the way a parable works like this is the first two fail, and what Jesus should say is, but along came a lawyer. 
and he saved the day. And then that's supposed to make you go, oh, wow, yeah, see, we are actually really good. We're better than priests and Levites or, or whatever, right? But that's not what Jesus does. He goes, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan? You know what sort of inbred, half-breed people these are? Like, that's what they're thinking. Let me give you a little history, okay? Back in the Old Testament, when you get to the first half of this book, uh, at one point, the nation of Israel breaks into two. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And right before they're exiled, the northern kingdom gets exiled by a different group of people than the southern kingdom. And in the northern kingdom people, they're forced to intermarry with people who have pagan gods. And so they take on these worshiping of other idols and, and these different gods. So when they come back together as the nation of Israel, right, God's chosen people, you have this half-breed people in the northern kingdom who don't know that you're only supposed to worship God. They worship these other things. And so there's this division within Israel that says, yeah, you guys may be like sort of from the line, but you're not real Jews because you gave that stuff up when you walked away. You know, your grandpa, he was a pagan worshiper. And so whatever you believe about God is sort of tainted anyway. And it sort of developed this nasty rift between the two, right? Like Samaritans aren't real. They're not real Jews. Why do we call them Samaritans? They're just somebody else. They're gross. And if you read through Scripture, you find that that's the attitude, right? For those of you who are Republicans, it's like the Democrats, they're wrong. For those of you who are Democrats, it's like the Republicans, they're wrong. You know, yeah, they say they love Jesus, but come on, right? You, right? You do that. Come on. I mean, we're Facebook friends. <laughs> Don't lie. We, we're, we're among friends here, right? Right? You do that. We all do that. We have these people that we've sort of decided are the half-breeds, right? And Jesus says, but a Samaritan. And the lawyer's like, what? Why would you bring them into this? As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man in, on his own donkey and brought him uh, to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave, the, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the lawyer can't even bring himself to say. Says, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say Samaritan. I can't even give him that kind of credit. The one who had mercy on Jesus says, go and do likewise. Who is my neighbor? See, we want to sort of like make it like, you know, I can, I can be neighborly to those people who ascribe to my values. I can be neighborly to those people who think the things that I think, and they look the way that I look, and they vote the way that I vote, and they go to the same kind of stores. They're not Wawa people. They're sheep people, <laughs> right? They're the right people, Right? We like to do that, don't we? And, and if Jesus says, yeah, that's okay, then I can only love my sheep people and I can disregard the rest of you wrong people, right? But he doesn't do that. Jesus says he knows that who we are and he knows the sin in our hearts. He knows how messed up we are. And so Jesus expands the concept of neighbor so that he can expose a hard heart. 
He says, if I shrink this at all, you can religiously obey this and you'll never be different. But I make this big enough where it causes pain and exposes the fact that we can't. God have mercy. Like this should make you, like this should make you ache a little bit. Because I have people in my life that I don't want to love. And I make reasons why I don't have to. And here comes Jesus messing up my reasons. Do you have people like that? All right, I'm going to kind of go out on a limb here and try to make this really, really, like, practical. Right now, there's a lot of huge divides in our culture, right? Build the wall. The wall is stupid. Right? Everybody got real. I just, like, you all, like, sucked in all the air. Everybody got a little panicky. And what it means is that the build the wall people have to love the illegal immigrant. And the wall is stupid people have to love the person who says four more years. I wish I didn't have to say that. I wish I could let you live in your bias. Apparently Jesus doesn't care about that either. What it means is that the person who's a pro-lifer has to love the person who walks into the clinic. And what it means is the pro-choicer has to love the person who says, this is bad for you. This is not God's design for life. You can't change the world by picket signs, friends. You change the world like life on life by loving people that nobody else is going to love. It doesn't solve anything to stand in front of somebody with a sign and tell them they're going to burn in hell. But it also doesn't stand, it doesn't change the world by passing legislation either. You know, what changes the world is saying, hey, I know you're at risk, and I know that you, you want rid of this child, but God's best for you is that this child would live. So I'm going to care for you and this child if need be. Even though it's going to be hard, and it's going to cost me, but I'm going to take that on. I didn't intend to go here. Do you see that? Like, if Jesus had let us decide, then it would be okay for us to yell at people. If Jesus had said, well, you can choose who your neighbor is, then it would be okay for us to go, well, they're nasty sinners, so I don't have to really care about them, and I can yell at them. But Jesus says, no, you've got to love them all. It's going to cost a whole lot. It's going to cost you your entire life. That's why we started this whole series out with the call to die. Your life is not your own. Here's the thing. Because this is now not supposed to be a religious exercise, but it's supposed to come out of you, you should find this impossible. Some of you are going, this is never going to work. I can't do that. Maybe you should try. For those of you who think you can, you should try for a little while. But here's the deal. This comes out of the religious category, and it comes into the category now of new creation. The only way this works is if you become new, if God's spirit lives inside you. It's the only way you can do it. I mean, you can't fake this stuff. Not one of us can do it naturally. Jesus says you have to be born again. That God's spirit lives in you. And because God's spirit lives in you, you have his love for other people. Do you see that? I mean, 
at a very base level, how can we love our neighbors if we don't even know our neighbor? How many times have we actually sat down to have conversations with and under, seek to understand people who think differently than us? I mean, even though they're wrong. But seriously, like to get to know each other, to get to know people. Yeah, they don't love Jesus. They love something else. But get to know them. Get to understand them. How do we love our neighbors if we don't actually know them? I want to finish with a story, and then we're going to pray. Um, there was a, a, a preacher in, in the 1850s uh, named William, and he lived in, in England, and um, he grew sort of tired of preaching in the church, and so he kind of harnessed the great spirit of John Wesley and went out of the building and began to preach in the streets to the people that would never come to the church. These are the people who, they don't, you know, they're not Christians, they don't get it, they're wrong, they're sinful, they're they're nasty and whatever else. And so he goes out into the streets and he begins to preach to these people and they begin to, to discover life with Jesus. But then he says, you know what? It's not enough for me just to preach at these people. You know, these prostitutes, they need a family. They need an income, a way to live life without having to sell their bodies. These addicts, they need somebody to care for them. They need people to provide them with the, the structures necessary to get free from drugs, these alcoholics, they need the, so he, he found himself like trying to provide housing for, for people uh, who were homeless. And over a period of time, the landscape began to shift, and some of you will have put it together, the man's name was William Booth, and he founded what is now the Salvation Army, built entirely around not just preach the gospel, but like, what does it look like to love our neighbor and our neighbor as described by Jesus? Not just the ones we like. Friends, if we want to see Altoona change, it's not going to change just by us loving one another. That's a huge start. We're going to have to enter into those spaces where we love anyone who comes across us who needs mercy. That's the way you change the city. I believe God has called us to do that. 